Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the next session of the CX Goalkeeper podcast. Today I have Hannah with me. Hi, Hannah. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. And thank you very much, Anna, to, to be here for this discussion. I am really thrilled because I was able to follow your presentation at the CX Summit 2021. And for me, it was really mind-blowing what you discussed, what you presented. But before we go into the topic, let's perform a short introduction. Anna, can you introduce please yourself? <laughs> My pleasure. Um, I'm originally from Canada and uh, ended up moving to the United States for my master's degree, uh, specializing in user experience design. So I'm a CXer with a UX background. Um, I ended up getting married to a man in the car industry and we moved all around the world. So first we went to England where two sons were born. Then it was back to the US for a year, then Thailand for three years, then Ireland for two years, And now we've been in Germany for 12 years. And uh, I've worked uh, mainly with UX design agencies in London, uh, first with the agencies and then as an independent consultant. And I found as the world grew more digital that it made sense to me to focus more on customer experience rather than user experience. And people often ask me, well, you know, what's, what's, what's the big difference in user experiences about digital artifacts and a lot of customer experiences happening through digital interfaces now. So what's, what's the difference really? And what I tell them and, and why CX is for me a more interesting problem is that UX is concerned with optimizing digital artifacts in themselves. But with customer experience, you're actually popping up a level and you're interested in optimizing the way that these digital artifacts mediate the relationship with the customer. So customer experience is more about people and processes and, and mediating relationships. And it's not the, the, the pure design elements in, for their own sake. So for me, CX simply became a more interesting problem for me as I went through my career. And an important thing to note <laughs> is that if you are a UX designer, Uh, within a few short years, nothing that you've ever created still exists. It simply doesn't. Websites get replaced, apps get updated, personas change, and then you don't really have any you know, lasting artifacts from what you've done. But I always felt with CX, every time that we're influencing people and how things are done and, and influencing colleagues and, and peers and customers, We're creating ripples in this world that spread out and, and may have a long lasting impact even if we don't see it right in front of us. So for me, CX is the most wonderful area to be working in. And, um, and I find that CXers in general are really kind, uh, warm-hearted and, and cooperative people, very connection friendly, very supportive. And it's very, very rare to find someone who isn't like that in CX. And, and so I, I, just, I just love the people who are involved in CX and I love being part of this kind of work. So really this is like the best possible career I can imagine. You know, and finally, I think what I love about it as well is the diversity. There's such an interesting range of, of backgrounds from people who are involved in CX whether it's marketing or UX or operations, or some people are purely from customer service. 
they come from all kinds of different backgrounds. And in every environment that I've been, whether it was school or work, it was the diversity of people's backgrounds that led to peak creativity. And so I really, I'm always excited about what we can accomplish together with our different backgrounds. Thank you, Anna, for the great introduction. It, it's really interesting. And I think it's what I want also to mention. You were my first chair of judges at the International Customer Experience oh, Award right. yeah. last year. And now I'm really happy to, to have you on, on my podcast. As I said, uh, for me, it was really, really interesting to follow you during the CX Summit because you were speaking about the difference between uh, pipeline business and platform businesses. And you were explaining and deep down, deep down, uh, deep diving in, in, the, in the platform business. I would like to start this discussion and for, for, for the audience also, could you please explain the difference between uh, these two types of businesses? Well, well, first I'm going to have to almost go back a little bit and finish my introduction because I didn't quite make it up to the present in my enthusiasm. But um, about a year and a half ago, I met a local entrepreneur in Dusseldorf working in that building right there uh, in Dusseldorf. And he was the CEO of um, a digital business and platform consultancy called Ecodynamics. And we met and ended up speaking for something like four hours the first time we met. And we had so many interests in common in terms of digital business and the customer and uh, digital transformation and all of the interesting issues that business face now in the, in the digital business world. And, and we shared a lot of concerns about how in some ways, because the uh, German culture is more careful and conservative that, that we in some ways were, were falling behind, you know? And so we both found that we had a great interest in platforms and that we, we felt that it was the future of business. And also very importantly, in terms of you and me and things that we care about, it's all about value creation for the customer. And that's something that comes out in your chapter as well as mine, even though they're in completely different areas. You're talking about customer service and finding ways to leverage customer service for value creation. And I'm talking about different business models and how these new and strange business models can be leveraged for value creation for all sides on the platform, the customer side, the partner side, everyone who's involved in that. So for me, this was tremendously exciting. Um, and I could see for myself that platforms had kind of taken over our world over the last 20 years. And, it's, and I, can, I can remember the exact day when for the first time I ordered my textbooks on Amazon instead of standing in line for hours at the campus bookstore, which is the way it was done before. You know, and that was this life-changing moment that Amazon came, on, came online, provided our textbooks and pretty soon started providing everything else. <laughs> and uh, so, so this phenomenon has been creeping up on us. We're using TripAdvisor and Uber and we're on YouTube and we're ordering stuff on Amazon and all of this is going on. And it's so much like the, the, the oxygen and the air we breathe, we almost don't even notice it. And that's, that's what I feel is happening in CX is that we're so used to platforms as, as consumers that we don't even realize this is fundamentally changing how business works. So in terms of pipelines versus platforms, you asked me to differentiate those two a little bit. And a pipeline is a classic um, 
linear value chain business, which is the, you know, has been around forever and dominated the 20th century. The whole industrial area era and post-industrial era was dominated by um, value creation within a company structure where employees deliver products and services along a linear value chain. So it's all one way flow from the company through the employees, sales, marketing, distribution, and finally to the, the end consumer or customer if it's B2B. It's always one way. And everything we know about customer experience has been about optimizing that linear value chain. That's why marketing is so important, for example, in terms of mediating the customer relationship. But then these platforms come along and they do something completely different where instead of, instead of owning and controlling resources, you're controlling access to resources. And the value creation isn't just what your company is doing, it's what the participants on the platform are doing. So if you imagine there's a, there's a platform and there's customers and partners, if it's a two-sided platform, for example. So think about Amazon, our, our classic example. Amazon started out as just an online marketplace for their own products. So Amazon was selling, we were buying. Then they started bringing in partners and competitors who also sell their products. So now it's, you've got um, a selling side and you have a buying side. This is two-sided. And both sides are contributing to the value that exists there in Amazon. It's not just Amazon and their products and it's not just Amazon and their partners and their products. It's the fact that all of those products there brings traffic and all of those customers who are creating traffic on that website attract more buyers and then, or sorry, more sellers. And then the sellers have more goods that attract more buyers. So the partner side's benefiting from all the traffic and the customer side's benefiting from all of these products that are available on Amazon. And that's called the Amazon flywheel. It like, it builds and builds and builds. And in platform terms, we talk about network effects. So each new, when each new user to the platform increases the value to the others that are already there, that is, that is a positive network effect. So for example, LinkedIn wasn't very important when only the first thousand people were on it, but when millions of people are on it, then it has high value for everybody. And the same with the telephone system. It's one of the earliest networks that we had. You know, if it was just two or three people in your town who were connected, it wasn't nearly as valuable as when the whole world is connected. So that's, that's the important thing. And the, with these platform businesses, they're able to grow exponentially without exponential increase in cost because each new user adds negligible marginal cost to it. So it's quite, uh, you know, it's quite a different way of doing business. And in a, in a traditional pipeline business, if you want to increase the volume of business you do, you have to add employees, you have to add more uh, resources and material. And so you get more of a linear monotone growth, not the kind of wild exponential growth that you sometimes see in platforms. And believe me, investors notice that too. So the way that they value platforms is at a much higher multiple than a traditional pipeline business because they see that potential for exponential growth. So that's sort of a basic description of, of the difference between them. It's sort of the Amazon flywheel versus you know, a regular online store. 
I think this is, this is a great explanation and it's really, really understandable. And if you start thinking about it, then you see really big shifts from platform business to this, uh, to this sorry, from pipeline businesses to these uh, platform businesses. And I think you showed also one slide that was really, really interesting. And it was how are growing these platform businesses in US, in Asia and in Europe. Can you please comment a bit on that? Oh, in terms of volume of platform businesses? Yes. Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, they're basically two big centers of platform innovation in the world right now. And one of them is centered on the US and the other one is centered on Asia, primarily China. And here in Europe, we have, um, you know, we have platform startups, we have, you know, established platform businesses, but in much, much smaller volumes than the US or China. And I think people have to realize it's not necessarily that we, we lack innovation in Europe. It's that in part because we have, let me say, somewhat more robust regulatory frameworks. And we tend to expect our platforms to perform in a way that's going to be consistent with our social democratic values. You know, and that's an important thing that people have to realize is that platforms are not free of ideology. They, they have an ideology built right into them in terms of how they work and what kind of behavior they allow and what kind of functions they allow. So I think here in Europe, we're simply a little bit more careful um, about exploring this space. But um, I think it is important that we do have a, a platform business culture here in Europe that's you know, consistent with our goals and values and also consistent with public good as well, because that's a side of it that has really, um, I can't speak too much for China because I'm not as, you know, I don't have boots on the ground there to see how they're working. We, we know that uh, China has more of an authoritarian framework, which might have some pluses or minuses. Um, I think in, the United States, you see more of a, a neoliberal framework behind the platforms, but then comes um, a certain criticism about platforms abusing their powers because they're maybe not as regulated as they should be, or that the uh, regulatory framework needs to to catch up. And and you know that's why uh, we find situations like Uber being sued to recognize that, that drivers are employees. And there's a lot of concern. I think a great question somebody asked me at the CX summit is are they abusing their power? And you know, I didn't wanna to get too into that because I know there are people who specialize in exactly that subject, but it is a question that you have to, to ask. And you do have to be aware that whoever is the platform owner has all the power because they have all the data so look at the example of Amazon, for example, selling their goods, but also selling their customers' goods, and they have all the sales data on all of that. You could argue that that's a situation of unfair competition when Amazon markets their own products against the competitors on their own website. You know, and, and maybe the partners have to accept, well, I'm a little bit at a disadvantage when I sell on Amazon's platform, but look at this, look at the size of this, this market that I have access to. You know, so there are trade-offs there. But I think when I, the thing that I'm especially interested in is actually not so much the e-commerce platforms, but the 
uh, sharing economy platforms and online networks um, that have been established because I'm very, very interested in digital trust. And trust is one of, trust greases the wheels in the platform environment because that's what allows people to interact and exchange value with confidence. So there has to be a certain amount of trust between the participants. And there also has to be a certain amount of trust between the participants and the platform itself. So look at a social media platform like Twitter and you'll notice it's about 70% male. And that is not an accident. That's, that's an issue of governance on the platform. And the, it reflects the extent to which many women, certainly minorities, or other marginalized groups feel that they are poorly treated and not protected from, um, from um, hostile behavior uh, on Twitter. And so it skews the gender ratio. So that's a direct consequence of governance. And even Twitter have admitted they didn't get proper rules in place at the beginning. And now it's so big, it's, it's quite difficult for them to, to manage. So that's something I'm, I'm very, very interested in because the, the key thing that you need to know about platforms is that everything, everything about the health of the platform is keyed to interactions and exchange of value, whatever that value unit is. So Uber needs drivers and riders and they need to be able to connect and they be, need to be able to transact together. And, um, and so that's, that's a trust issue. But the trust has come up in so many other different environments even on Amazon, if you buy goods from a third party seller and they turn out not to be as described or the quality's not as described or they're fake reviews, that erodes your trust in the platform overall. You know, so I've always kind of wondered um, because that issue has come up so many times over so many years, whether Amazon finds that an acceptable, uh, an acceptable, um, I don't know, external, negative externality or whether they're simply deciding that if third-party sellers are unreliable in some way, does that make Amazon's own products look a bit better? So I've never really figured out what their strategy is there, but the long and the short of it is trust greases the wheels and everything to do with platform health depends on the interactions. And then that, you know, that gets into a whole other topic. I don't know if you wanna get into metrics at all, but there are different metrics for platform businesses as well. Not yet. I, I think uh, I really like this explanation and it was a longer explanation, but it really helps to understand the differences because most of the people are really focused on, let's say, I name that now old fashioned business. It's it's the pipeline business. And, and now this is this mind shift in the direction of platforms that you have different actors and different interaction. You mentioned relationship, you mentioned uh, trust, you mentioned differences. Perhaps could you elaborate on the, a bit more on what are the implications for customer experience because it's a complete different business uh, business setup and therefore there are for sure implications also on customer experience. Yeah, I think the the main issue for me is what are we gonna what are we gonna take from traditional customer experience that can add value in a platform environment and. And when I reviewed the literature of platforms, you know, looking for any clues, anything, anytime they discussed uh, the customer or the two sides of a, a two-sided platform or how the interactions work, I looked for clues and hints about what makes CX work 
in that environment. And that's how I developed my three keys to customer experience for platform businesses, as you, as you know from, from the talk and also from my book chapter. And they were value, usability, and trust. And trust we've talked on, talked about a little bit already. Usability, um, I think it just goes without saying in any digital environment how important usability is. Um, the customers and, and partners in the case of a two-sided platform, they have to be able to, um, to exchange value in a way that is relatively easy, friction-free, it has to be convenient, it has to be easy to get around the site. All of these sort of traditional usability heuristics are applicable in uh, a digital platform environment. And then that brings us to the third issue, which was value. And, um, you know, and I know that you're just as interested in that as I am, because I remember from your chapter in CX3, you were talking about the, uh, the value irritant matrix, which I thought was really cool because that was a VP of Amazon, Bob Price, wasn't it? Yeah, who had come up right. with that. And it was a way of um, prioritizing uh, customer experience issues that were as either high or low value for either the company itself or for, for the customer. And you gave some fantastic examples of using customer service to leverage more value for the customer. So that was an issue. And, um, and in the platform environment, it's the interactions that allow that exchange of value that are so crucial and generally, platforms start with, with one simple core interaction. There's one thing that it wants to achieve. So take um, ride-sharing platform, BlaBlaCar from France, which is a really nice example of good governance, really good digital trust, and uh, doing public good as well. So BlaBlaCar originally started with just matching up riders and drivers for, for some kind of ride-sharing function. I think it was city to city at first. But eventually they found that because they had emphasized good governance on the platform and strong pillars of digital trust, there was enough of a community feel on this platform that it went beyond just transactions. And so when COVID hit, they were able to, in just, I think it was about 10 days or something, they were able to launch a new app called Blah Blah Help. And that was use, tapping their community to help others in need, people who were either quarantined or stuck at home because of health issues or were vulnerable and couldn't leave. And members of the Blah Blah community actually volunteered to drive around picking up their groceries and bringing to them, bringing, uh, picking up prescriptions and bringing prescription medicine to people. And I thought it was such a great example of, of the power of platforms done right to actually build community and build bonds between people and then leverage that for social good as well. Yeah, I, I, this, this is a great example of why I'm excited by platforms. I know that a lot of people have concerns about how much power they have because of that, uh, that exponential growth. They become, often it's winner take all or winner take most is a reasonable way to put that. So we worry about concentrating too much power in the hands of platforms. But then you look at an example like Blah Blah Car, tremendous uh, power to, to, to mobilize a whole community and to build bonds with people. And, and the riders and drivers say, I, I, I've met such interesting people. I've gotten to know people. Now, 
obviously not as much of that going on right now in COVID times, but I, 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 looked, at, um, I looked at the founder's TEDx talk about using platforms to build communities. I read every article I could find about them. Um, and I really started to feel that there are many examples in, in the sharing economy, especially, that really leverage trust and digital communities and doing public good. And it's all on the backbone of good governance. So just, just the fact that we see platforms now, and then maybe some of the American examples we see, we think, oh, they're really successful as a business, but I don't necessarily like what they're doing to communities or how they're, 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 they're treating people who are de facto uh, workers. Um, and th those, are, those are governance and regulation issues. And, and they're wrestling that with that in the US, just like here, believe me. And, and often platforms actually get ahead of the regulation. So it's a bit of a wild west in that respect. Um, and there have even been examples I've cited in presentations where people came to me later and said, do you realize that platform is kind of exploiting a, a lock-in effect, making it difficult for them to change to another platform? You know, and I, I do realize that, but I, I, what I choose to focus on is, is the potential for good that I see there because it is, it is tremendous and it's world changing. And to me, that's something to really get excited about. And I think this is really an important uh, thing that you're saying, the poten potential for good. And you spoke quite a lot of community about communities. And now the CX community would like to learn a bit more about Anna, because uh, you, you are author of the CX3 book. You are working quite a lot. You're an expert in, in this topic. You were the chair of judge at the International Customer Experience Award. How can you ensure to have a proper life work balance? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a really interesting case study in that regard because um, for a long time, I didn't find it possible at all to have any kind of reasonable work-life balance. And, and part of the reason was that I have two boys with special needs uh, in the area of what we call invisible disabilities, where there is uh, ADHD and there is autism spectrum on the scene. And... Um, and you know, I didn't, I didn't have any other children besides these two. So for me, however they were, was just normal. And then you start getting into the school system and suddenly you're getting all kinds of feedback that this isn't right and that isn't right. And could you talk to your son about this? He's doing this thing that he's not supposed to do. And for me, it was really complicated by the fact that we were doing all of this in a foreign country, in a foreign language, far from home. I didn't even know any German when we came to Germany. Um, so there was all of, in, in addition to all of this, having to, to settle into a new culture and learn a new language that were, it was compounded by all these concerns about my boys. And in this country, um, a child's fate in terms of their eligibility to go to university is pretty much decided in the fourth class. So while they're still very young, not even 10 years old, their future is being decided. And we felt tremendous pressure when we came here to try somehow to get them as ready as possible that they could get that recommendation for gymnasium, which is academic high school starting in the fifth class so that they would have the option to go to university later. And we, we did that, but 
there were many, many bumps in the road. There were extremely challenging times where there were uh, issues so pressing that I once had 90 child-related appointments in a six-month period. And, and every one of these, of course, is in German. It has to be researched and I have to plan out what I'm gonna say <laughs> and then they're gonna go off script anyway. And it was just so hard, so relentlessly hard for 10 years. Um, I can almost see the light at the end of the tunnel now because my older son is studying at university and my younger son has almost finished secondary school. But when, if you, if you want to have a family with two careers, you really need children whose lives run like the Swiss rail system, basically. Everything needs to be on track. And if it's not working like that, then something has to give. And in my case, I had to change uh, any idea that I had about having a conventional career um, and be more of an independent consultant because I had to fit whatever I do into the framework of, of this, this family life. It's inescapable. I mean, you have to make it all work together. And in the end, I feel like I was able to do that, but only because I have the freedom to work as and when works for me. And I love the fact that in CX, you can do that. You know, maybe it's harder if you're in a, if you're in a big company um, and you have fixed hours and, you know, before COVID we had to be at the office as well. You couldn't just leave because some um, emergency meeting has been called or something. Um, but you could also be part of a consulting firm. You can be a freelancer. You could be an influencer of some sort. There's so many different ways to contribute to CX that are non-traditional paths. And for myself, and I think for a, for a lot of women, especially women with young children, it is, they need that kind of flexibility. And so I hope, I know you're with a big company or you have been with big companies uh, and many people are, and I hope people will think about, are there ways that we can make working conditions more flexible so that people with different circumstances can continue to participate? Because you know we all have contributions to make, but we can't necessarily all do them in a standard 40 or 60 hour a week package. Exactly, and, and, and I think this is, this is really an, an important po point to make possible to people to work and to, to give their um, inputs, insights on, on, the different, uh, on, on the different topics. And I always, I'm always delighted to see how much power mothers have in order to support the children to grow up in a proper way, to have all the opportunities open and additionally to work and additionally to ensure this and that and that. And therefore my, my full respect for what you said. Thank you for sharing this story. It's, it's really, really, really interesting. Thank you very much. It's, it's really a nice story. And it's, it's, it's the reality because if you watch television, then you always see the, the perfect family, uh, father, mother, and uh, two children. But the reality, it's, it's a bit different. And, and I think, thank you for, for sharing this story. Oh, it's my pleasure. And the, the, this, the, the next question I, I would like to, to ask you, and um, it's, do you have a book that you would suggest to the audience that you say this book, it's, it's really a great one. You can have a look at for sure. 
we are both authors of customer experience three. Therefore, this is our first suggestion. There, let's go to the second suggestion that you would have. Oh, you know, there's so many, so many good books. You know, on the CX side, I absolutely love Convenience Revolution by Chef Hyken because that's the one that made it absolutely clear to me, and it's still crystal clear now, uh, post-COVID, especially so, that what customers really want is for you to make things easy. And I found that to be equally true in, in B2C as B2B. In fact, I gave a talk to D.B. Schenker earlier this week. Uh, it was their internal Get Inspired event for 72,000 employees. And I talked to them about the importance of customer centricity in the logistics business. And that was really interesting because I was able to give them the example of DHL Freight's CX redesign a few years ago, which was widely reported in, in my customer and a few other places. And um, how they had felt that road freight had, had become a commodities business, which and commodities are brutal to be in if, if the only thing that matters is getting the lowest price. But when they actually got closer to their customers and surveyed them to understand better what they needed and wanted, the number one thing on their wish list was just be easier to work with. You know? <laughs> and so it made them realize that even though road freight was behaving like a commodities business, it actually wasn't. And they had multiple, they, they, they dove down deeper, of course, into what they meant by be easier to work with. But the idea was the only reason it was a, a commodities business in the eyes of the customer is that the providers hadn't done enough to differentiate themselves on experience and the, and the, the survey and the work that they did revealed all of these different ways that they could set themselves apart from competition. So I, I, I always feel like uh, being in a commodities business or, or even, you know, at the very low end of a business like uh, the ultra low cost carriers, we talk about that sometimes, that's a very tough business to be in, but it doesn't necessarily mean experience doesn't matter. And, and actually, I think there's a case to be made in, in the case of ultra low cost carriers like Ryanair, that it's because the normal middle of the road carriers didn't differentiate themselves that it created an opening for low cost because people thought, well, I'm going to have a terrible experience flying. I might as well pay the lowest price. I think we already have a topic for one of the next <laughs> discussion, but let's, let's go back to this one. And uh, the second last question is uh, if somebody would contact you to deep dive about this, this platform business, um, what's the worries, what is the best way to contact you? Oh, well, yeah. Contact me on, on LinkedIn for sure. I have, I respond to my messages there. I have email there. Um, and just on a final note, because we were talking about book recommendations as well, I talked about inside, uh, outside in, um, and I also talked about convenience revolution. So outside in, I think that was Carrie Bodine and um, yes, correct Harley Manning, yes. right? And then um, convenience revolution was Shep Hyken. But if you are interested in platforms, if you want a really readable book that conveys just how significant this is, then definitely pick up a copy of The Platform Revolution because that is the gold standard, I think, in this space. And uh, is so full of amazing examples that tell you how platforms work and why they're so important. I think that's, that's a, a great piece of work. And I think there's even, there might even be an updated edition 
coming. I think it was 2016 and there's like a five-year anniversary updated edition of that. But I would really, I, I really want to encourage all CX people to learn more about platforms and start thinking about what we can do to be, um, to contribute more in that space. I mean, I don't want to be the only one. It's a lone, one is a lonely number. So, so please, please join me, find out about platforms and let's start talking about what we can do to um, improve platforms for the better from a customer or partner experience perspective. Thank you very much, Anna. And you already picked up my last question, even if I didn't ask that, because my last question, it's always about your gold nugget, Anna's gold nugget, something that you already mentioned or something new, but you already answered this question greatly. Thank you very much. And the last thing to say is thank you very much for your time, Anna. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a real pleasure talking to you today. And also to the audience, thank you very much for being here, for listening to the podcast, to watching for the video. Uh, it was a great pleasure and I hope that you enjoyed the discussion as much as I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Arrivederci. Grazie mille. Bye, everybody.